today. We finally made it out of chapter one. Let me read the text that we're going to be going over. We're going to do, uh, I'm going to start back in, can we make that, yeah, not as loud for me, too much of me. It's kind of odd get coming up here without crutches. I don't need, like, Greg to stand up here and give me help, and I need the Lord, but today I can do it without Greg, I guess. That's uh, amazing. Let me read James 1, 26 through chapter 2, verse uh, 7. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, that man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the scripture that's before us. We thank you that you've given that word to us, not just to increase our knowledge, but to change our very lives. Father, you want us to be um, first fruits of your creation to look like Jesus and to long for him. So today I pray that you would so move and so teach us to not be partial, to not be respecter of persons. And we thank you that uh, you call us to that because you're not a respecter of persons. And Father, we thank you that in your mercy you look down on the poor, on the least of these. And Father, today I pray that maybe above all that we would see that that's who we are. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. So uh, a lot of times... We have diagnostic tests. You go to the, uh, get your car fixed, and if they're a good mechanic, they're like, well, when it first starts up, what does it sound like? And then they might say, well, when you accelerate from stop position, what, is, what does it do? You know, you get all those diagnostics, and it, it gets them along the way to say, what's wrong with your car? I had a, one of my, uh, my family doctors when I was a, an adult. I kind of went out of the, the children's doctor kind of thing, got into college, and came back for a year or two and still went to my children's doctor. And I'm like, I don't want to go to a children's doctor. They probably know everything that I needed, but still. So I went to another doctor. He was great at that. He would say, you know, when you cough, is it a hacking cough? Is it this? Is it a sharp pain? Is it a dull pain? Is it, you know, diagnostic test. Well, I came across this uh, recently. I thought it was really good. And this is, uh, you may be a redneck if. So let me read these. Uh, diagnostic test, right? You may be a redneck if uh, you have tires on your house but not on your cars, right? You may be a redneck if the uh, gas pedal is a foot-shaped, barefoot-shaped pedal on your car and you drive it that way. You may be a redneck if you think of turtleneck as the key ingredient of your soup. Let that one sink in. Uh, you may be a redneck if, you, if you're asked for your ID, you flash your belt buckle, right? 
Yeah, so we have these diagnostic tests, and we have those things too for Christendom. Like, you probably are a Christian if. And what we really mean is what's kind of the minimal requirements? You know, you might be a Christian if, well, you go to church. You ever use that? You like talking about somebody like, well, well they go to church. Like, they're okay. Uh, you know, if they don't go to church, they would say, well, they're a good guy, right? They're good, they're good people. And we kind of mean that they're fine in the Lord and everything's good. Uh, we, we might ask the question like, um, well, they're, they're morally better than most people. They're pretty good, you know, pretty moral. You might say, uh, well, they say they're a Christian, and who am I to judge, right? So if they claim to be a Christian, they, surely they are, and who am I to judge? And uh, lastly, another one that I hear a lot is like, well, they, they kind of know a lot of Scripture. They must, they must be okay. And so we use this diagnostic tools to ask the question that maybe they're okay in the gospel and maybe they're walking with the Lord if, but Jesus doesn't know any such indicators. The Bible doesn't know those things as indicators of being right with God. In fact, if we were in the book of Romans, we have the first 11 chapters of Romans and they're very doctrinally rich, like who is God and who is Christ and who is man and what's our need and how are we saved and redeemed and how does that all work and we hear all that, and in Romans chapter 12, at that point, it says, therefore, because all these things are true, and now you're in Christ, what's, what are we supposed to do? What's an indicator of new life? We're to give what? Our whole life to him, right? Everything. It's only reasonable, Paul says, to give him our all. And in the book of uh, Hebrews, is not much different. The first 11 chapters are very rich in truths about doctrine and who is God, and what is the Old Testament there for? What, it was, what was it showing and foreshadowing? And it's like, it's showing us the Messiah, now that we're okay on the Messiah and the blood of Christ and we can enter into his very presence, well, well I go to church, uh, you know, I'm, I'm okay. No. He says, now you're ready to run the race that's set before you. Now run it with endurance and patience. Continue on. Keep on going. Well, James is very much the same way. He wants us to keep on going. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, this is on the screen. It's one of my favorite verses. And, uh, it says, for the love of Christ controls us, or some of the versions say compels us. The love of Christ pushes us along the way. Uh, having concluded this, that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, why? So that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again on their behalf. Uh, that's what James is looking for. James is looking for an indicator of a Christian life that we're completely transformed by what's going on. James is concerned with true religion and, and true faith. The, writer, the, the readers that James was writing to, they were struggling with all kinds of things. They were persecuted, forsaken. They were oppressed. They didn't have all the stuff. They were kicked out of their homeland largely. Not all of them, but many of them at that point. And what was going on was that they were really struggling to go back and like, you know, we're just going to go back to what we know and do things, not live this life for Christ anymore. And James is like, hey, consider it all joy when you fall into all these various trials of all kinds, right? And they're like, how can you consider it all joy? And so James is like, if you lack wisdom in that, ask for wisdom. And he tells us partly why that they can consider it joy. It's like God's at work. You know, in the middle of suffering, God's at work. In the middle of difficulties, God's at work. In the middle of distress and and darkness, God is at work, and he's doing something uh, that is bringing about patience and endurance, and he's working, and he's 
working in our waiting. And if you're lacking wisdom, ask from him. And it's, it's hard to understand God's economy. David mentioned that in Christ, we have a whole new economy. Things are different. The value system is different now. It's not the same as it used to be. And it's hard for us to get and understand in the world that has a completely different economy and value system. So we are dull of hearing. And that's what James has told the people. Why were they dull of hearing? Why were they sluggish to grab a hold of this new economy where God works and the suffering? Well, they're sluggish because they were dead in sin. They, that was their condition. James lays that out for us really, really clearly in those middle of the chapter one verses. And he says that God's not the one that tempts you, but you're tempted when you fall into things that entice you by your own wickedness and, and you take of them and and, and then he says that we're dead in sin and that that, uh, that sin gives birth to death. But then we have a whole new birth narrative that comes in the next verse. It says uh, that by the exercise of his will, God births us. He gives us new life by the power of his word. And then he says in verse 21 that he implants that word in our life. And James is saying when that word is implanting with your, in your life and you have new life, then all of a sudden, God's economy and the things, your value systems change and things should be different and you should be being transformed. The very end of chapter one, he gives us some indicators of what is true religion? What would it look like? What are the indicators? What are the diagnostics? If we were saying, man, God did change my life. God did give me new life. God has implanted the word in me and it's growing and it's producing fruit. What does it look like? Does it look like going to church sometimes? Does it look like reading his word occasionally? Does it look like I do a little bit more good than bad? No, it looks something very different than that. It shows itself not just in what I say, but what I do. And he gives us three kind of indicators. And the first indicator that we saw is like, is a controlled tongue. That a person that has true religion has a bridal tongue. And we titled that controlled conversations. The reason we said that is we said that it's not just having a bridal tongue not to say bad things, it's having a tongue that speaks truth and life into other people. So we're to have conversations that give life, not bring death. The second thing is we need to have compassionate care. How does he put that in, in James 1? He said that we should go after and, 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 and serve the orphans and the widows in their distress and in their need. And lastly, he says we were to have a clean character, that we're to keep ourselves unstained from the world. Those are some indicators that James lays out there. And what's really interesting is those three indicators are now what carries through the whole rest of the book. In chapter two, he takes the compassionate care and he expands on that compassionate care. And he takes in chapter three that conversations and bridling your tongue and giving life with your tongue and he expands on it in chapter three. Chapter four, he takes the idea of being unstained by the world and sin and he carries that on further. And so really the whole rest of the book James is unfolding maybe not so much doctrine and heavy truth, but he's unfolding what those truths look like in a life that's been transformed by them. So he's unfolding what the Christian life actually looks like when the word has been implanted and when the word is bearing fruit. And so uh, in chapter two, he's just used orphans and widows, not exclusively, but as an example of all those who are in need and who, the, who are in distress. So orphans and widows don't make up the entirety of who we're supposed to care for. Uh, they're examples of that. They're the needy. They're the ones that can't repay us, can't pay us back. Now, I want to say this early on in the sermon. 
I want you and I to see this, if we don't see anything else, that you and I are the needy. You and I are the poor. You and I are the ones who can't repay. And God is the one who has looked on us with favor and mercy and grace without favoritism, thankfully. No partiality. Uh, the title of the sermon was Your Seat at His Table. Um, it's really easy to, to be partial. I, I used to fly a lot. I mean, when I mean a lot, I mean like a whole lot. You know, million mile kind of flying. Not at one time, but a lot. Um, and I did uh, a lot of flying. And so I would fly over to uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, Thailand, Taiwan, uh, and I would fly over there very often. And um, so when I was flying, I remember early on in those long flights, you know, on those big planes, those 747s, how many people have ever been on a real huge plane like a 747? On the 747s, they had like a first class section. Man, you know, the seats reclined all the way. It was amazing. Uh, they probably massaged, I don't really know. But early on, I walked right past that class and, and through the business class right to the no class. And so I would sit in the no class section and it was miserable back there. I mean, they had us like this, like, you know, I was a big dude and I was up against other people. And um, it was tough. And I remember one time, not on this plane that had three classes, but they had two classes, just the first class and no class. And I was sitting pretty close to the first class. And I remember a lady sitting close to me, getting up, pushing the curtain in front of her, walking a step into it, and then another uh, flight attendant coming to her and saying, well, I'm sorry, ma'am, uh, this is for our first class customers. You'll have to go back there. And I remember turning around and looking where back there was, and it was like, this bathroom is like two feet away, and that one's like crazy far away. And I started hating the first class people, right? You know, I, I was out there waiting to board the plane for a 13 or 14 hour flight, literally. And I was sitting there like, I'm ready to get on the plane. And so we're boarding first class passengers. And then we're boarding people from, you know, the, the section one and section two and section three. And I had to wait like forever because I was section 23 or whatever. Well, then I flew so much that I got a gold card, you know, uh, a gold card. So I got to, you know, have a little bit more benefits. And instead of having to go back to that bathroom, I was able to use this bathroom at the front of the plane. And I remember getting, you know, drinks before the flight and during flight. You know? And I got to board earlier than anybody else because I had a gold card. And so where I used to hate the first class people, then I started becoming jealous of the first class people, then I became a first class person, I was pretty happy. And that might sound, well, it's okay. But the truth is, I started looking down at the no-class people, and you know what? There was something different in my heart toward them. They were just those people. And you know, that illustration could be used that if you get a gold card and you're in union with Christ, a lot of things are good, but truthfully, it's also very partial. And, and the world is, is kind of a, a, a different system, and God's economy is different than that. But here in, in our world, um, Jesus came and changed our whole value system. In our world, we value people that have things, and they can give us things, and they can get us in big and great positions. Well, Jesus came, and he, he didn't really turn things upside down. He really came and turned things, what, right side up, right? The way things were meant to be. And so uh, 
In God's economy, it's, it's very different, and yet in the church today, sometimes we act more like the world when it comes to favoritism than we act like God and God's Word. So even within the church, we don't like to admit this, but in our fallenness and in our humanness, we're pretty partial to people. When somebody uh, comes in that seems like, man, that's pretty, hey, we should put them right up front, give them a you know, table or a seat at the front, or if they prefer, the back, whatever. Um, and so we, we tend to do that. The, the way the Bible puts this is this. Man looks on the outside appearance, but God looks on the what? He looks on the heart. Has a different thing. So God looks on the heart. He's not too interested in your bank account, uh, your wardrobe, your jewelry. He, he's not too interested in any kind of commendation of your character, knowledge of your mind, your social status, your job status, your marital status, your prestige, your earthly honors your talents, your abilities, all those things individually or even collectively as a group, they mean absolutely nothing to God in the sense of regarding you and the way he regards you. Why? Because what do you have that he didn't give you? Let me give you two verses. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 puts it this way. For who regards you as superior, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? If we get these two verses, we could probably start living the rest of the sermon out pretty well. What do you have in ability, in your bank account, in your looks? What do you have in your status, your prestige, your honors, your talents, your job that you weren't given by the Lord? And then 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Not that we are adequate in ourselves, as considering anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. God is impartial when he deals with people, and we tend to be pretty partial. And it runs pretty deep. Let's look at the illustration that James gives us, and then let's consider some of the applications of that illustration. In James 2, 1, he says this, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. And uh, your version might say, don't be a respecter of persons. Um, personal favoritism um, is, is the same as respecter of persons. Don't be a respecter of persons. But it doesn't mean just don't respect a person. We're going to see in a minute that he's not saying don't respect people. What he's saying is on what basis do you favor people and what basis do you look at people? What's the basis and then for what purpose? So those are two questions that are going to run through the day. Uh, what's the basis of the way we look at people? And what purpose, what, for what purpose do we interact and look at people and hold them different ways? So the respecter of persons, the word itself for that, that uh, personal favoritism, it, it has to do with partiality, that we look at people partially, not impartially. In other words, the word itself in the Greek means to lift up somebody's face. Uh, kind of, you know, you, you look at when, you're, when your mom, maybe you were younger, it's like, did you get cleaned up and they lift your face? I'm like, okay, you look pretty good, right? Or your mom might lift up your face and like, ah, you got to go wash again, right? That kind of thing. And what it's saying here is to raise somebody's face or to elevate them, the idea is that uh, you're judging by superficial things. You're judging somebody's character based on primarily their appearance or by superficial things that they have. We need to be reminded that God hates that. Um, why? Because we do that almost without thinking, right? We do that almost without thinking. Sometimes we do think but we do it pretty badly. We're, we're called to not base our love and our value, and listen to this, we're not, we're not called to base our investment in the people based on their appearance or their appeal 
of their affluence. And we do that all the time. We're not to place, this is another thing that this teaching should be, we're also not to place our value and, and our worth in what people think of us, right? My, my worth is, we already sang this, my worth is on the cross. And you're pretty valuable to, to the Lord. He, he died for you. He's the one who gave you the value. Not that we're adequate in ourselves. So, for what purpose do you uh, deal with people and on what basis do you deal with people? Let's, we'll look at that. Let's go to the next thing. The, the illustration is found in James 2, 2-4. For a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes. There also comes one with a poor man in dirty clothes. And you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in the good place and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down by my footstool. Have you not made a distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? So we can imagine, and this is kind of the setting of uh, the God's people gathered together. So we'll just use the idea of a church. And so somebody comes in the church and, man, they're, they're decked out. They're in nice clothes and you can tell that, man, they probably... They have, the, they have the appearance of, uh, of somebody with, with wealth, the external indicators that they probably could help me out or they could help the church out. They'd probably be a big giver. Our church could use some more funds. Man, why don't you come up here? There's some good seats up here. You know? And then somebody else comes in and, and they kind of smell and hadn't had a bath in a while. They look pretty shabby and their clothes are holy. These are wholly different, but those are wholly holy. And so we like, hmm, there's a, there's a couple of seats there in the back. We'll save these for somebody else that might come later. And God says he hates that. We've become judges with evil motives. And what's the evil motives? Remember we said, on what basis? Well, a lot of times the what basis is, what can they give us? How can they help our assembly or our organization? Or how, they, how can they help me? What can I get from them? Versus what will I have to give them? What will it, what will it require of me? Um, and so uh, being a judge is, is evil because we don't, we, we're not there yet. But verse 5 said, didn't God choose differently? And so when we choose to, to, to show favoritism this way, what we're doing is going up against the sovereign God who chose completely differently, chooses those who are poor uh, to be inheritors. This is really hard to do, and we're called not to show favoritism. So let's go through what he's not saying. I think that's pretty important that we get that first, and then we'll hit what is he saying about showing favoritism. What James is not doing is reducing every man and woman to the same level in the socialism sense. Well, what he's not saying is don't, don't respect an elderly person when they come in and ask somebody who is younger to, hey, can you give up the seat for that elderly person? He's not saying don't do that. Matter of fact, in 1 Peter, it says we're to honor and respect other people. So he's not saying that everybody's in a class on their own. It doesn't mean that when you have people over to your home, and your you know, eight-year-old is lounging on the couch, and they've got the couch first, and so like, well, guess, I'm sorry, we're like, don't want to, we can't respect you differently than our own kids. Um, just sit on the floor. That's not what he's saying. Does that, does that make sense? That's not the point here. Everybody's the same. We still need to have respect for people. Uh, James isn't setting aside those things. But here's a couple of... of um, of passages that, that I think help us out understanding that God hates favoritism and he doesn't do it. Proverbs 28, 21. I have these on my phone and not on my paper because I added them. So let me get to them. Proverbs 28, 21 says this, to show partiality is not good. 
it's evil. To show partiality is not good. Leviticus 19, 15. You, show, you, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Now, this is an interesting passage because it says don't give deference or preference to who? To whom? To the poor or to the rich, right? You're going to treat them both similarly and good. Um, so this is interesting. And I think uh, it's worth taking a, a minute to say this. That James, when we look at that verse about the orphans and widows, I hear this pretty often. And they say that real religion is uh, dealing with orphans and widows. And that is an indicator. But they were given as uh, examples, not exclusively. We can actually, this would be uh, breaking what James is saying. There is ritualistic worship, meaning we can come to church and we can say we're Christians and we can read the Bible and we can memorize Philippians 2, and we can get it all down in one night, and we can still be in bad shape. So, that, you know, so this, that, and, and we know that, we, we kind of get that. Like, you can be pretty, like, up, up there, the, not the least of these, but like the high-class people, and do all the things right, dress well, and, uh, it, you know, and, and still be, have problems. And that's no problem. We, we get that, because we're saying James is speaking against that kind of Christianity. He's saying, man, we need to be doers of the Word, not just looking like or doers of the word. But just as bad as, not, as ritualistic worship is ritualistic service. And I think we need to get this. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, it's not enough just to go and serve the orphans and the widows and to say, I'm okay because I'm giving my life to the orphans and widows and I'm not like those people that just dress like Christians. I'm actually doing this stuff. But if your heart's not changed and you don't know the gospel, then that's ritualistic service, and that's no different than ritualistic worship. Do you see the difference? I mean, there's none. There's none between those things. And James is talking against both those things. Even in the indicators, James is talking against both those things. We're going to see that what the poor need is the gospel. What the poor need is to be rich in inheritance of, of the kingdom. Um, and so we have to be really careful not to go from one extreme by not serving and to the other extreme of thinking that the gospel only is serving. And it's not that they meet in the middle, we need to go out there and say, we need to serve with all we are because we want, what, the poor to be rich in Jesus. And we want the rich to be humbled uh, so that they would be rich in Jesus as well. Um, so James is saying God's not impartial. Malachi 2.9. I'm going to urge you guys to read Malachi 2. Matter of fact, I'm going to mention it again in a minute, so I won't tell you that yet. But let's go to Malachi 2.9. So I make you despised and abased before all the people. Now, this is God saying to the priest, you're despised. Why, are they dis why is the Lord despising them? Inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but you show partiality in your instruction. And so the priests were showing partiality in the ones that they instructed. Um, and we'll hit that again shortly. Lastly is Proverbs 22, 2. I love this. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them both, of them all. That, that's the answer to it all. That, that's the beauty I, that we need at Living Hope, that the rich and the poor, they meet together, and the Lord is the maker of them all. Let me go to an Old Testament passage, just an extended passage, and I think it's very good in helping us understand uh, how God is not partial and how we're not to be. It's in Deuteronomy 15. We'll look at verses 7 through 12 and 14 and 15. I'll read it all and then kind of uh, talk a couple things about it. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, 
And any of your towns and any of your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. Beware that there is no base thought in your heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of remission, is near. And your eye is hostile towards your poor brother, and you give him nothing. Then he may cry to the Lord against you, and it will be a sin to you, in you. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. Because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I am commanding you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. If your kinsman, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, then he shall serve you six years, but in the seventh year you shall set him free. You shall furnish him liberally from your flock and, and from your threshing floor and from your wine vat. You shall give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. So what is he saying? This is an Old Testament passage that we're supposed to freely give to all those in need, whatever their needs are. It may not be money. It might be time and labor and effort and lending a hand and things, but we're to open our hands. I, I love the illustration there. Don't close your hands to them. Don't like turn away and like, Oh, I need some help. You know, we're like, oh, I need some help. You, you like, kind of move over to a different place. I'm like, I hope that Henry answers the call to that. <laughs> uh, and he's saying, don't do that. When you see a poor brother, whatever they're poor in, we're to open our hands to them. And what's really interesting here is it goes a little bit further. And he mentions the seventh year. And what he says about the seventh year, let me tell you what happens in the seventh year, first of all. First of all, for six years, if you were owing somebody something and you were having to work it off by by working for them, the seventh year they had to set you free. And so if you borrow, borrow something in the sixth year, if you, don't, if you don't work for them very much, you're not gonna repay them very much. And what he's saying is, don't be concerned about the seventh year. If somebody comes and they have a great need in six years and 363 days, and they can only serve you for two days, and then you have to you know, re redeem them or give them, don't worry about that. Serve them anyway. Do you see that? That's a, that's a pretty cool thing in this passage. It's like, do it in, without regard to how they can repay you. Whether they can repay you for six years, whether they can pay, repay you for two, whether they can't repay you at all. And that's what he's saying. It's like you give freely. That's how God, and, and he says this. I love this part because that's how the Lord your God blessed you. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God, he redeemed you. And therefore, I command you, to do the same this day. So don't base how you give another, how you serve another, how you go toward another, how you um, serve another based on how they can repay you, what they can give you, but do it from the heart. God did that for you and for me. He, he gave from his heart, not based on what we could give him because we could give him what? Nothing. And yet he freely gave open-handedly to you and, and to me. He goes on further. The text also says, hey, when you free your servant or your slave that had to work for you because they couldn't pay you on the seventh year, you don't just say, man, you're free. What do you give him? You give him of your best stuff. You load him down with stuff. Why? So he doesn't go have to serve somebody else the next day. You know, he's free to, to live life differently, freely. We live in a world that's addicted to appearance. It's supposed to look like this, be like that. 
put on a little axe, get the girls. You know, we're supposed to you know, look like all the models, and we value uh, so many things that the Lord doesn't value. The Lord values the soul. We value so many other things. What criteria do you use to assess folks, to decide whether you're going to move toward them, to decide whether they're worth your investment of your time and your labors and your ener what energies? What do, you, what do you use to, to determine their significance or determine your investment in their world? Our world says one thing. And our God says something completely different. It's not just a minor matter. It's really easy to think, yeah, I prefer some people. And, um, you know, everybody does. But to God, he says it's, what, not a good thing. To, 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 be, to favor people is not good. And he also calls it an evil thing with evil motives. So it's not a minor, minor thing. Matter of fact, James 2, 9, we're, this is next week, but here's a, a preface for it. But if you show partiality, you are committing... What does it say? Sin. And are convicted by the law as a, I'm going to use a, a, the ESV, a lawbreaker. That's a serious thing. Why is it serious? Because our God is this way, and our people need to be the same. James 2, 5 through 7. Listen, my, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you in the court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? So Jesus doesn't show favoritism, thankfully. We have um, an organization in town that we love and we support, and we, do, we support them with RUF, and Matt Schaup is here, and he works with them a lot, and that's the Lot Project. The word Lot, a lot of people don't know this, but it stands for what, Matt? The least of these, the poor, the beggarly poor, the ones who don't have, the have-nots. And so Jesus, um, he reached out to the least of these, right? He reached out to the prostitutes. He reached out to those who were drunkards. He reached out to the least of these. And he also reached out to the, I put in my text, and this is one of those dad jokes, mots, the lots and the mots, the most of these. He also reached out to the Pharisees. He reached out to the leaders of the land, to the kings, the governors. He reached out to them both, and it's important uh, to understand the picture that Jesus gives. Jesus chose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. That's in the text. So, you know, it, it doesn't mean that everybody that's poor is rich in the faith. What it means, though, is those who are poor have a better understanding that they have nothing to offer, and therefore they come ready to be rich in the faith by what God gives them through Christ. The poor get the gospel. So we choose differently than God. We choose with evil motives. We choose based on what can they give me. Uh, Jesus was impartial, but he was also impartial with the leaders and with the people who uh, were the leaders. And he went into the people that were the leaders. He went in there, and, and he wasn't impartial. He taught them the truth. Now that's where Malachi comes in. In Malachi chapter 2, and I would urge you to read 1 through 9. It's, it's gold to go along with that, this. But in Malachi 2.9, it's like a teacher, and, and they're, they're not only partial to the people who have, look like they have stuff, and where they sit, they're also uh, partial on in their instruction. In other words, we're really careful not to come down hard or, or heavy on somebody that can give us a different position, right? If I have a boss that has control of, like, he might be able to put me in a new and a different position, and, and I, I see sin, and I see problems, and I see mishandlings, 
a lot of times I don't go and I'm impartial, so I don't go to him with the truth. Does that make sense? And God hated that. And, and, the, and the priest, the priest wouldn't look at these people and like, these were the people that have, and let's call you the have-nots for now. And so he would, he, would, he would look to you guys and he would preach strong, rich stuff to you and like condemning and convicting and you've got to change. And He didn't touch their sins. He was careful not to. God hates that. Well, Jesus went into places that the people thought that he should go into and he went into those places and he said things that they thought he should not say. Does that make sense? He went into the Pharisees and he went to the, to the home of the Pharisees after the Sabbath day worship but when he was there, he didn't just say, thank you for inviting me. He showed them their sin. Well, then, he, then he also went into places that people said, oh, we shouldn't see you there. But when he went into those places, he said things to them that the people thought they shouldn't say that to them. What did he do? He extended them the gospel. So he went into places that people thought he should go into, and he said things that they didn't think he should say. And he went into places that they thought he shouldn't go into, and, and he offered them the gospel. That's the good news of of our God and our Lord. He always lived for the kingdom interest, no matter who he was with. That's the idea about being impartial. It's about treating everybody with the kingdom interests in mind, whether you're treating the poor and, or the rich that way. Um, you, do you always live for the kingdom interest re, without regard to outward appearance? Do you always live for kingdom interest without regard to the time and effort that's going to be required of you to step into that situation or those people? Do you always live for kingdom interest without regard to what you might get back from those people? And Jesus did. Matter of fact, Jesus' uh, disciples, they were trying to protect Jesus' time, and they're like, man, you don't, need to, you, know, you don't have time to deal with the Samaritans and the prostitutes and the children. And Jesus said what? Let them come. Without regard to if they could repay, but also this. Without regard, maybe even with regard to how much he had to pay. That's what he's saying. It's like we're to go after people with kingdom interests even if it's going to cost us a whole lot and we get nothing back. That's what Jesus did for you and that's what he did for me. Chapter 2, verse 1. We're almost at the end. I'm going to read this again because I think it's the key. Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, Christ. What he's saying here, the, the word glorious, the word glory means weightiness. And, and what the, the distinction here and the comparison is like, if we understand who we are in Jesus, if we understand our high position and our richness in him, it's only right that we're going to care about anybody that comes through the door. Does that make sense? If I'm trying to like make a distinction between the haves and the have-nots, what I'm saying is my heart, I, I'm finding my glory and my weightiness and my value and other things besides the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he's saying we have a glorious Lord. How do I know that that's true? Because if we go back to chapter 1 and verses, I think it's 9 and 10, it says this, that it says like, hey, poor, you need to rejoice in your high position in Christ. And he says this, hey, rich, you need to glory in your humiliation. How can he say that? We can understand the poor glorying and having Jesus, but how, do, how, do we, how are we to take the rich being poor in their humiliation? It's because what he's saying is the poor and the rich, you guys stand on Christ, both the same. The poor, you, you need Jesus, and, and you, you get him, the gospel. 
And, and rich, you need to understand that you have nothing that you can bring and offer. And so you glory in your low position because once you have empty hands, then God can fill you up with true riches. And at that point, you stand the same before the Lord. You know, um, where do you find your glory in? Sometimes uh, young men find their glory in being strong. And Isaiah 40 says this at the end. It says, even vigorous, this is the King James. I, I like the King James here. It says, even vigorous young men stumble badly. You know, we boast in strength. One day, recently, my father-in-law was an 85-year-old who had strength beyond me. Sorry, I should be able to get this out. 24 hours later, he couldn't use but one of his four appendages, only his left arm. His value didn't change because his value was not in using all those things. Where's your glory? Second uh, Chronicles 19.7 says this, There is no iniquity with the Lord our God, nor respecter of persons. I want to just ask you, are you glad that God doesn't respect persons? He doesn't look on you and like, man, you're the haves, I'm going to die for you. You're the haves, not, not, forget you guys. No matter of fact, he looks on us all the same, and he says we're all what? We're have-nots. We have nothing to offer. The best things that we have that we could possibly offer him, guess what? He gave them to us, and he can take them away in a moment. Verses 6 and 7, last section. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not despise the fair name by which you've been called? And that fair name by which we've been called is Christian. We're to rejoice in that. Let the poor rejoice that in his high position of being a Christian. Let the rich man rejoice in his humiliation and understanding that I have nothing to offer. And they're both rejoicing in their standing in this noble name. They're both rejoicing in their standing in Christ. Now, in verse 5, if we understand that we're all poor, verse 5 is beautiful. It says that the poor, what do they get? Oh, they're the ones that get, they're the ones that are rich in faith, and they're the ones that get the inheritance of the kingdom. They're the ones that get those things. Now, the middle class, I was thinking about this, the, mid, the middle class, they think, well, I can make it eventually. I just work harder. The upper class, they think what? I've already made it. And the poor sometimes struggle, like, I just don't know if I'll ever be able to make it. And that's where we need to see that we are. We can't do it without Christ. We all stand at the same place. We're all, maybe we say, beggarly poor. Let me end with this. I asked this question throughout the time. I think you should put it in your mind to ask, on what basis do you assess people? On what basis do you assess, am I going to move into them and toward them? What basis do you assess, am I going to invest time there, effort there? Is it evil? with evil motives, as it said in that passage? In other words, what can I get back? Or so long, so long as it doesn't take much of my time and effort and energies. You know, on what basis and for what purpose? Let me, let me show you on what basis and what purpose the Lord did it. And we'll end with this text. And this is in 1 Corinthians. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many of you uh, wise according to the flesh, 
and not many mighty and not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, the noble name, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in this and boast in the Lord. On what basis did God choose? Not many were noble. Not many were mighty. Not many were wise. But for what purpose? By his doing, you're in Christ Jesus. That's the purpose. How do we live our life? Psalm 68:10. O God, thou hast prepared of thy goodness for the poor. And I pray that living hope can go and model that. That we can live our lives without regard to can we be paid back or what will be required of our payment toward that. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the word that's before us. It's, uh, it's encouraging and it's hard. It's encouraging that you lived your life without regard to what we could pay you back with because we had nothing. And Father, we thank you that you lived in relation to your people on the basis of a purpose of making us Christ, giving us and calling us by that noble name that we don't deserve. Father, I pray that this body, not only individually as we hear, but also corporately as we move and do, would step into situations, particularly with one another, but also with those that you bring our way and the world that's close to us. That we step in without regard to being paid back and even without regard to what it might cost us. But not only that, help us to step in that we may see them come to, come to Jesus. And we thank you that you've done that for us. That you live with your people without respect to what they can do or their bank accounts, or their looks. For what do we have that we haven't been given? In Christ's name we pray, amen.